Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I will cover 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22, which I've entitled, Suffering for Righteousness' Sake. This is continuing with the theme that was in the first part of 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 12, where Peter talked about suffering for righteousness' sake, and he mentioned how much Jesus had suffered for righteousness' sake, and he mentioned husbands and wives, how they're supposed to get along with each other. And so now we start in verses 13 and 14 of 1 Peter 3. And who will harm you if you are deeply committed to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed. We start out with a problem. Who will harm you if you are deeply committed to what is good? Is this a promise by Peter that if you commit yourself to doing good that nobody's ever going to harm you? Well, we know that can't be true. The NIV Study Bible says, as a general rule, no one will harm you if you're committed to doing good, especially if you're actually committed to doing it. Well, okay, that makes sense. But then how do we reconcile Peter's words here with what he says in 1 Peter 4.12? Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Now, that verse makes it sound like fiery trials and ordeal were a normal state of occurrence. So how do we reconcile that? I think the best way to do it is this. Peter is talking in 1 Peter chapter 3 about doing good civically, not rebelling, not rebelling against authority, against the government, doing what you're supposed to be doing, and people will leave you alone. And that's generally true. But now when he gets around to 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you. That's after you start preaching the gospel. Because you start preaching the gospel, you can be good all you want civically. The government, an atheist government or a pagan government will come after you. And that will be a usual thing. I think that's how you reconcile it. Well, Peter doesn't want any undue persecution come on the church because the the Christians were not behaving properly. And that makes perfect sense. In verse 14, we see Peter himself disproves the idea that it's an ironclad promise that no one will harm you if you're deeply committed to, to do what is good. As he said in verse 13, verse 14, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness... For doing good, in other words. If you should suffer, that leaves open the possibility that you might be suffered for righteousness. So, it's not guaranteed that you're not going to be persecuted when you're doing good. You might be. That if there's a third-class conditional, future more probable, as they used to call it, which means it is not guaranteed to happen in the future, but it is likely to happen in the future. I don't believe too much in pushing these conditionals too far and trying to get too much out of them, but I wouldn't be surprised if Peter's thinking, yeah, you're probably going to be persecuted for righteousness but be sure you don't get persecuted for doing unrighteousness make sure you're doing good at the time you're persecuted if you should suffer for righteousness does that mean you suffer for the doctrine of righteousness justification by faith righteousness is a synonym for justification should you suffer for the doctrine of righteousness that you're preaching could be that's adam gill's idea i don't uh, john gill's idea i don't think so i think it means if you should suffer for being holy if you should suffer for the gospel of holiness if you suffer for being holy, living a Christian life, if you suffer for that, in other words, by doing good, if you suffer for that, you are blessed. Now, this sounds like what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Adam Clark says Peter is probably referring to this passage in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5:10 through 12. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed. That sounds exactly like what Peter was saying. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are coming to a stage in American history where Jesus is openly mocked more and more and more. There's no fear of God. There's no fear of Christ. And Christians who believe in what Jesus taught, they are persecuted Try saying that you're in favor, that you're opposed to homosexual sodomite marriage on a college campus. See what happens to you. See how tolerant the people in the academia are. They'll chop your heads off, call you a homophobe, call you a bigot. Now, there's a little phrase here at the end of verse 14 in 1 Peter 3 that's a little bit interesting. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed. What does it mean, don't fear what they fear? Who's the they? The they is referring to the evil ones mentioned in verse 12, where Peter said, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
Now in verse 14, do not fear what they, those who do evil, fear. Well, what do they fear? They fear to be punished for doing evil. So don't do that, because if you do good, you won't fear what evildoers fear, getting punished. You won't have to experience that fear. We go now to verses 15 and 16 of 1 Peter 3. But honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. That reminds me of Ray Comfort. I love to watch Ray Comfort evangelize on YouTube videos. And I mean, he picks on some of the nastiest people, you know, atheist, evolutionist. I shouldn't say nasty because actually they're fairly nice in the videos, but they, they have these horrible beliefs. Let's put it that way. But well, one time he did, I remember seeing him talk to someone who was pretty nasty. He was a neo-Nazi. He had swastikas tattooed all over him. He had a big bright blue mohawk. And I mean, he looked like the devil himself. And Ray Comfort was polite to him all the way through. And Ray Comfort is Jewish. So, I mean, you know, it can be done. You can you can talk to people who have offensive doctrines and still be nice to them. You can do it, as Peter says here, with gentleness and respect. Peter says, honor the Messiah. The NIV says, set apart the Messiah in your hearts. King James says, sanctify the Lord in your hearts. And Adam Clark makes the point, that's not really a good translation. How can God, who is already holy and set apart, be made holy and set apart? Well, it's talking about you setting apart Jesus in your heart. So I don't think that's a, really a, too much of a valid criticism by Mr. Clark. But the point is, is you set apart Jesus in your heart. You don't mingle him with all the affairs of the world that you have in your heart, which all of us do. Money, promotion, who am I going to marry? You know, those things that drive us all crazy. Matthew 6, 9 says this. This is concerning the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, Therefore you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Or as the King James have it, hallowed to be thy name. Your name should be honored as holy. Hold him up in an honorable way and quit using his name like a curse word like so many people do in the movies and in the culture and everywhere. It's terrible how people treat the holy name of Jesus. Honor the Messiah's Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you. Don't be caught flat-footed when someone asks you about your faith. Be ready for it. Be able to articulate what happened to you. When someone asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, be ready. A reason? Well, that means you should give a defense. Now, the, 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 the defense should be from a reasoned use of the Scriptures, not an appeal to authority. You don't say, I believe in Jesus because the Pope told me to believe it. Or, I don't believe in Jesus because the Westminster Confession of Faith says it. Well, that's not going to impress too many people. You appeal to the Scripture, to the revealed Word of God. And also, I should say, through the testimony of what Jesus has done in your life, I change you from a miserable, rotten, lousy sinner to a sanctified saint. Those testimonies of conversions of, and changes of behavior are very powerful because people can identify with that. They say, oh, man, he was a reprobate. Now look at him. He's quit running around on women. He's quit doing drugs. He's going to church. He's singing songs. My gosh, what has happened to him? Give a reason for the hope that is in you. Hope is a confident expectation of the future. It's not a mere wish, a mere velleity. It's, I, won't, I know it's coming. And the hope, of course, is the hope that we have in the gospel, eternal life. This letter of First Peter, which is so full of suffering, it's also full of hope. Let me read you some scriptures that talk about hope in First Peter. First Peter 1, 3. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First Peter 1.13, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be serious and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. First Peter 1.21, Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. First Peter 3.5, For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also beautified themselves. All right, so it's a very positive message. Hope even when you're suffering. This hope is said to be in you. Give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, I said that hope should be, excuse me, that your defense of your faith should be with reasonable propositions derived from Scripture, but also the hope that is in you. That means subjective factors are important, too. Our defense of the faith can and should include subjective factors as well as objective appeals to the Scripture. Again, as I said before, what God has done in your life, the testimony part of it, 
Now, he says that your opponents will be, those who denounce your Christian life, will be put to shame. How do you do that? How do you put them to shame? By being nice. Do this, this defense of your faith, with gentleness and respect. You do that, that will make your nasty opponents, it'll put them to shame. As people contrast your demeanor with theirs. As the NIV Study Bible says, an apologetic answer is always to be given in love, not in degrading terms. And I just mentioned how Ray Comfort does that greatly. He's very gentle as he rips apart the worldview of the atheist and the neo-Nazis and whoever else he's dealing with. He's very polite. It's amazing to watch him. Now, we're supposed to be gentle. We're supposed to be respectful. But that's talking to people who are asking about the Messiah. That's not talking about people who are claiming to be Christians and are ripping the faith up with heresy. Obviously, Paul denounced them. Hymenaeus and Philetus, gangrenous, he's writing to Timothy. They're gangrenous. They're shipwreckers of the faith. Don't have anything to do with these people. Jesus, he was pretty rough on the Pharisees. So it's obviously not talking about people who are actively attacking the faith. This is talking about people who are sincerely inquiring about the faith. You've got to respect the fact that they're looking. They, have, they don't believe yet. They're looking. You've got to be nice to them. I mean, you know, if somebody's trying to sell you a powerboat or, or a machine tool or something, you don't look at them and say, you're a jerk. You're, gonna, you're not going to treat my powerboat or my machine tool with respect. You don't do that. You be nice to them. Likewise, you be nice to people who are inquiring about Jesus. We put to shame those nasty people who attack us with their nasty words. Jameson Fawcett Brown says, Jesus' cause does not need man's hot temper to uphold it. Onlookers will know the denouncers of Christians are full of hot air and hatred if we just behave nicely and gently and respectfully. The Christian's deportment and way of life will contradict the words of the accusers. 1 Peter 3.17 For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And again, we're talking about doing good here. No, we're not talking about witnessing to the Lord. But if we do good, the odds are that nobody's going to persecute you for that. They might, as Peter says in verses 13 and 14. They might, but again, they might not. But if you do evil, by golly, they are going to come after you. They're going to come after you for preaching Jesus. Then they're going to mock Jesus because you've done something wrong. And then they're going to put you in jail or punish you for doing wrong in and of itself, in addition to the fact that you're preaching Jesus. So, Peter returns to his theme in verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good, not doing evil, doing good. Don't rebel against the emperor. Don't rebel. If you're a slave, don't rebel against your master. If you're a wife, don't start being a shrew and shrieking and yelling at your husband. Don't do that. Peter is very concerned about the reputation of the church, especially in the persecutory environment in which he was operating. Now, notice that Peter says it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Now, that shows that it's God's will whether somebody suffers or not. And this means something to me because I lived in China for so long, and I saw so many Chinese people being persecuted and bearing up under it with a smile. And, of course, I was always convicted and impressed by what I saw. And I kept thinking, well, you know, why are they suffering and why am I not? And I got in, the, in my mind that Christians in America can't suffer. And then... Starting in 2005, for about five years or so it was, I mean, my life was so bad that I thought, why am I getting up in the morning? This is an entire waste of time. Maybe I should just lie here and stare at the ceiling. I, a friend of mine asked me how I was doing. He was in another town. So I, I listed out on the email, in an email, all the things that had happened. I said, friend, if I, if I was a famous person and submitted this to a movie studio for, as a script, they wouldn't buy it because it's too ridiculous. It's, things are so bad. And I hadn't even mentioned the worst thing that was happening to me. I left one of the one of the bad things out of the list. So finally, one day, it occurred to me that I was suffering. I never it never occurred to me. I mean, I was I was walking around like I was in a I was shell shocked. I, I would hear people talking, but they would kind of fade away in the distance. And I'm saying, why am I? And I would start backing away and watching other people do their activities and think, why are they doing this? What difference does it make? And so one day I'm sitting on my porch and I was praying and all of a sudden I just got up and said, God, I can't stand this anymore. Please make me stop suffering. And the word came out of my mouth and I realized, hey, I am suffering. Anybody can suffer. But I must say, I haven't suffered nearly as bad as friends of mine, even in America, have suffered. I've watched people suffer and I've seen so much suffering that I have a survivor's guilt complex. I keep thinking, why are they suffering and I'm not? Well, folks, there's only one answer to that, if it's God's will. And here it is, right here in Scripture. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will. 
all Christians are going to suffer sooner or later because God's going to take you through the school of life, if you will. But how much, when, how long, all of that, that's up to God's will. Now, of course, his reason for taking you through suffering is so that you will be divorced from the world, that your mind will be focused on him, that you'll love Jesus more than you ever did when you get through the suffering. All kinds of good things. What is it? Suffering produces endurance and endurance proven character and all those things. It's all good, even though you hate it and you wish that it was not happening to you when it's happening. But however God chooses to let you suffer, it's up to God's will. And by the way, this is a time to mention something about our friends, the Copenhagenites the Creflo dollars of this world, the Benny Hens of this world. You going to tell me that it's God's will for you never to get sick? Oh yeah, that's divine healing, no problem, but it's God's will that you never get sick? And you going to tell me it's God's will for you to have a Rolex watch and a Lamborghini because he wants you to be quote-unquote prosperous? And that it is never God's will for you to suffer because that's from the devil? I'm not characterizing this teaching, folks. I lived in it for the first several years of being in the charismatic movement. That's one reason I left the charismatic movement, even though I still believe in spiritual gifts. You know, it's interesting. In the first part of the charismatic movement in the late 60s and early 70s, the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, confess it and possess it, call it and haul it, scream it and redeem it, mark it and park it, folks, were a minority. They were on the fringe of the charismatic movement. Then they gradually took it over. They wiped out the discipleship boys and then the mainline denomination guys, and then they wiped out the old-fashioned Pentecostals, and pretty soon they took it over. And now I was just watching a reform video called The American Gospel in which they claimed that these Copenhagenites are now the face of American Christianity. So they went from being fringe nut jobs to a very present and real danger, the number one church in America, Joel Osteen. He wants you to feel good about yourself. Well, I want you to feel good about yourself, too, but because of Jesus, not because you are a success with lots of money. And I want you to feel good about yourself, but I'm not going to tell you that you're never going to suffer because Peter says here, if it should be God's will, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So it might be God's will for you to suffer, even though you haven't done anything wrong. First Peter 4.19 says this, so those who suffer according to God's will, so there it is, it's God's will for some people to suffer, Joel for those, Creflo, Kenneth, so those who suffer according to God's will should, while doing what is good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. Benny, have you ever read the Bible? Too busy counting your money, I guess. First Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring to you to God, after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. Now this phrase, once for all, Christ suffered for sins once for all, can be interpreted in two ways. Here's two options. One, Christ suffered for sins once for all time, didn't need to do it anymore. I'm telling you once for all. In other words, I've told you once and I'm not going to say it again. So I suffered, he suffered for sins once for all, not going to do it anymore. And the scriptures actually backs that up. Hebrews 9.28, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. So he appeared once to bear sin. He's not going to do it again. Or you could interpret it this way. Christ also suffered for sins once for all. That means he died once and he didn't need to do it anymore is the first option. But the all there would then mean not suffered once for all time, but for all people. He died once for all people, not for all time, but for all people. Now, if you take it that way, then you have the next decision you have to make is that once for all people individual, every individual on earth, if you are a believer in the general atonement, if you are an Arminian, a Methodist, a Pentecostal, a Nazarene, or that kind of type of person, that means Jesus died for every person on earth. Or if you believe in limited particular atonement, as I do, then that verse would mean that Christ suffered for the sins for sins once for all category of man on earth, for all Jews, for all Gentiles, for all outer Mongolians, for all Australians, for all Canadians, etc., etc., etc. But at any rate, Jesus is the prime example of suffering for doing good. This is the theme that Peter's talking about here. Good things happen because of his suffering for doing good, that he might bring you to God. You got saved because of his suffering. Now notice that it's Christ who does the drawing. We don't just come to God. He brings us to God. Big difference. John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Nobody can come to God. Jesus said it. Unless the Father draws him first. I don't know 
What are my goals in life to see how Arminians explain that verse? I'm sure they got a way of doing it. I'm not that up on Arminianism to know exactly how they do it. They must have an option, but I'm sure it's not a very good explanation because the verse is very clear in what it says. So Jesus might bring you to God. He suffered so that he might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm. That means in his body, but made alive in the spiritual realm. Now the question is, is what does it mean that Jesus was made alive in the spiritual realm? Well, the first option is to say that his body was made alive in the spiritual realm. He died in the fleshly realm. He died in his body, but he was made alive uh, spiritually in his body. So his body was resurrected and he went up to heaven. Now that makes sense if you say that Jesus' spirit died and then he was made alive spiritually. His spirit was dead, but then it was made alive. you got a problem is, well, how does Jesus' spirit die? Well, you can answer that and say, well... His spirit died because spiritual death means separation from the Father, and Jesus was separated from the Father on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so he was spiritually dead that way. Then he was made alive again spiritually when he was reconciled with the Father after the resurrection. That is one option of interpreting that phrase, being made alive in the Spirit. However, I think it makes more sense to say that Jesus was made alive bodily in the spiritual realm well, first of all, we see some scriptures that refer to physical resurrection. These scriptures using the phrase made alive. He was made alive in the spiritual realm. Made alive refers to resurrection, physical resurrection. John 5, 21. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, gives them life, makes them alive, gives them life, same thing. And it's there it's obviously connected with raising the physical body from the dead. So the Son also gives life to anyone he wants to, so he makes you alive. Romans 8:11. and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. So there, Jesus has made you alive, and that's referring to physical resurrection. Well, now some people might object to that, and they might say, well, how can Jesus' body be made alive in the spiritual realm? Well... This is how I would quickly answer that. Jesus is living in his body now in heaven. His body didn't disappear and die when he was resurrected, so he's in heaven in the spiritual realm, so what's the big deal? Well, some people say, no, his body can't be made alive unless you say that Jesus physically descended into Hades, the intermediate realm of the dead, in order to minister to the dead spirits down there. Well, I don't think that's so for one For one thing, that doctrine of descent into hell or descent into Hades is so iffy in fact, I don't believe in it. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But it's so iffy that it can't be used to really back up an interpretation of this verse that it refers to going to hell so that he could come back from the Hades to be made alive in the spiritual realm. That's just too much of a stretch. Let's look at some other translations of 1 Peter 3.18 and see how it most likely refers to that most likely the phrase being made alive in the spiritual realm refers to physical resurrection of Jesus' body. 1 Peter 3.18, this is the American Standard Version. Because Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, physically dead, but made alive in the spirit. Now that in the spirit could be mean made alive in the sphere of operation of the spirit. He was made alive by the operation of the spirit. And of course, the spirit could be the Holy Spirit. So it could be it's just physical resurrection by the agency of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 3.18, this is God's words translation. This is true because Christ suffered for our sins once. He was an innocent person, but he suffered for guilty people so that he could bring you to God. His body was put to death, but he was brought to life through his spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit of Christ, his spirit, through the agency of the Holy Spirit of Christ, his body was brought to life. So this translation there tends to show that the resurrection is caused by Jesus' divine spirit, the Holy Spirit. John Gill backs that view up, and so does the NIV Study Bible. 1 Peter 3.18, this is the King James Version. For Christ also has suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, through the agency of the Spirit. Quickened means to be made alive by the agency of the Spirit. And, of course, the King James takes the Spirit to be the Holy Spirit because they capitalize the S, even though it's not capitalized in the Greek manuscript. So let's back up here and just let me just give you my take on this. When Peter says that Jesus was put to death in the fleshly realm, but he was made alive in the spiritual realm, it means he was resurrected by the Holy Spirit. 
That's the easiest way to look at it, in my humble opinion. The other view, as I previously mentioned, is, is that Jesus is made alive in the spiritual realm because he's no longer spiritually separated from the Father. So when he was put to death in the flesh, in the fleshly realm, as the Helmholtz Christian Study Bible translates it, he's put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive when, he, when his spirit in the spiritual realm, when his spirit in the spiritual realm, when his spirit rejoined with God after being separated when Jesus was bearing sin. I don't think that's the proper solution, in my humble opinion. So, once again, let me summarize. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive through the Holy Spirit, resurrected by the Holy Spirit. And, of course, get so we don't get lost in the forest here, Peter's trying to make the point is Jesus suffered unrighteously. Uh, he suffered by unrighteous men, even though he was righteous. But look what happened to him. He got resurrected through the Holy Spirit. So, same things will happen to you, so don't worry about it if you're being persecuted and, and if you're suffering unjustly. 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20. In that state, he's referring to what we just said in verse 18, being alive in the spiritual realm. So in that state of being alive in the spiritual realm, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient. Now, let me just tell you now, verses 19 and 20 are very, very controversial. So I'm going to do my best to show you what it really is. Of course, I could be wrong. It's controversial because it's difficult. Let me start over again. 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. In that state, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Okay, in that state in the spiritual realm, in the state of being made alive spiritually, which I just said was having been resurrected from the dead physically, so that sort of cuts against what I'm getting ready to say. But I think that what Peter's saying in that state, in the spiritual realm, he's referring to when Jesus was not necessarily in his resurrected body, but when he was spiritually alive. He also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now we need to know who these spirits in prison were. I'm going to give you three options, one of which is pretty weak, and not many people hold it. In fact, it's denied by all three of my major commentators, Gil, Clark, and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, so I'm going to deny it too, and I'll tell you what it is. The idea is that the spirits in prison are the Gentiles who are spiritually in prison, in bondage to their sin, and Jesus preached to them through the Holy Spirit after his resurrection. So when the scripture says, in, when Peter says in verse 19, in that state, in the spiritual state, and you could also say in the state of being physically resurrected by the Spirit in heaven. In that state, he proclaimed to all the Gentiles who are in prison now because of their sin. Well, the big problem with that is there's no connection with Noah's Noah. At least the connection is not obvious. So what's that got to do with Noah? So I'm going to leave that option out and go to the two main options as to who these spirits in prison are. Option number one and this is the, what I believe to be the correct option. This is John Calvin's solution. This is what John Gill says. This is what, is what Clark says. The NIV Study Bible at least mentions this. It's talking about the wicked generation of people who lived in Noah's time. They were in prison because they were in prison to their sins. And Christ, in his pre-incarnate state, used Noah to preach righteousness. So that's how Jesus made a proclamation to these fleshly people living at the time of Noah who mocked him about building that ark, Jesus proclaimed to him how he used Noah and the ark. There it is. There's a picture of your salvation, and you're mocking it. The very ark that's going to save humankind, and you make fun of it. And as a result, you drown. Now, the NIV Study Bible points out a weakness of that interpretation. They say that the timing here, saying that Jesus is proclaiming to the spirits way back in Noah's time, the t timing there does not relate Christ's preaching to the resurrection because, remember, in the previous verse, verse 18, we talked about Jesus was made alive in the flesh. Excuse me. He was put to death in the flesh, and he was made alive in the spirit. And that's talking about his resurrection, as we just mentioned. And this view about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison doesn't have anything to do with the resurrection. Well, I think that's a weak objection, in my humble opinion. Peter is thinking of a connection between his readers who were saved from destruction. He's not necessarily thinking about the resurrection when he gets that down here to verse 19 and 20. He's talking about getting saved in a hostile, persecuting world. So that's how I would handle that weakness. The NIV Study Bible comes up with another weakness of the Calvin view. 
that this is referring to Jesus preaching through Noah in Noah's time. The word spirit without qualification usually means supernatural beings. So when you say that Jesus made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, you've got to be talking about spirits that are in prison supernaturally somewhere, like in Hades or in hell or something, but, but not on earth, not human beings on earth. Well, I can answer that one real easy. First of all, through the, a quotation from Adam Clark, who says this, quote, The word neomasi, spirits, is supposed to render this view of the subject improbable, just like the NIV Study Bible just did, because this must mean disembodied spirits, just like the NIV Study Bible just said. Adam Clark continues, But this certainly does not follow, for the spirits of just men made perfect, Hebrews 12:23 certainly means righteous men, not disembodied spirits, but men, and men still in the church militant, in other words, men still in the church on earth. And the father of spirits, Hebrews 12:9 means men still in the body. And the God of the spirits of all flesh, Numbers 6:22 and Numbers 27:16 means men not in a disembodied state. Now, to give you the full impact of Clark's argument, I'm going to back and read you the four verses he cited where the word spirits is, does not refer to disembodied spirits, but it refers to spirits like you and me with a body. Hebrews 12:23, To the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. That's obviously talking about Christians who are alive. Hebrews 12:9. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? The father of human beings who need to be disciplined. It's talking about human beings there. Number 16:22. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh. If God is the God of the spirits of all flesh, that means he's the God of people. Numbers 27, 16. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, same phrase, is the God of people. So, that objection by the NIV study Bible, in my opinion, falls to the ground. So, two objections. One, not a context of resurrection. And I say, nah, but the context is delivering people from their, from their distress. Context works fine for preaching in the days of Noah. And spirits can mean people, not just demons or angels or, or departed saints or departed evil ones. Let me read you a quote from John Gill, backing us up here, backing me up here. The plain and easy sense of the words is that Christ, by his spirit by which he was quickened, went in the ministry of Noah, the preacher of righteousness, and preached both by words and deeds, by the personal ministry of Noah, and by the building of the ark, to that generation who was then in being, and who being disobedient, and continuing so, a flood was brought upon them which destroyed them all, and whose spirits or separate souls were then in the prison of hell. Hear, hear, John Gill, hear, hear. John Calvin, I think you're both right on the money here. I don't like this holding tank theology where spirits go down into Hades and then Jesus goes down into hell, into, excuse me, into Hades after he dies on the cross and brings them back up to heaven. We'll talk about this in just a minute. Now, how can it be said that Noah proclaimed the gospel or proclaimed what Jesus was proclaiming? Verse 19, 1 Peter 3, in that state he also went and made a proclamation. Jesus made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. To the sinners in Noah's time, he made a proclamation to them. Hebrews 11:7 says this, By faith Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith he condemned the world. In other words, just by building that ark where everybody could see it, he condemned me. He said, you guys are going to drown. So that's the proclamation right there. Proclamation of the gospel. Death to sinners. Salvation to those who believe in God and get into the ark. All right, so that's option one. The spirits in prison are the unbelievers in Noah's time, John Calvin's view, John Gill's view, my view. Let me give you option number two. The spirits who are in prison are spirits in Hades, where they are kept until the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. Now, this is a common view. It's buttressed by the, some of the versions of the Apostle Creed, which says, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in Jesus, his only son, blah, 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 who descended into hell. Well, first of all, it should be Hades, not hell. It turns out that not all of the versions of the Apostles' Creed have got that phrase, descended into hell. John Grudem, in his systematic theology, has got a history of the Creed. And he shows clearly that many versions of the Apostles' Creed did not have that. And in fact, he rejects the holding tank view, as does Calvin, as does Gill. All right, so... If we're talking about spirits imprisoned in Hades in the Old Testament era, in the pre-Christian pre, 
pre-Christian era, pre-cross era, if you will, who are those spirits? There's some options as to who the spirits could be. First of all, they could be demons. More particular, this is what some people speculate, more particularly the demons who married human women during Noah's time. This is the famous Sons of God passage in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful. Now let's assume for a minute that the sons of God are demons. They saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wise for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim or the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. So that famous Nephilim passage it says that demons married humans or had sex with them and had babies. And so these demons somehow ended up in Hades waiting for Jesus to come preach to them. Well, of course, the first problem you have is Jesus preaching to demons. What good is that going to do? They're not going to get saved. First Peter 2, 4. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but threw them down into Tartarus and delivered them to be kept. This is Second Peter. I'm sorry. Second Peter 2, 4. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but threw them down into Tartarus and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness to judgment. Ah, that sounds like demons down there in Hades. Jude 1, 6, and he is kept with eternal chains and darkness for the judgment of the great day, the angels who did not keep their own position but deserted their proper dwelling. Now, those two verses, of course, are very, very difficult and controversial, and I'll take them up when we get there in Second Peter 2 and Jude 1. But the point is, is people, I'm just telling you what people think. They take these angels that fell, and they, then they put them down in Hades and say Jesus went down there and preached to them. Well, the first problem there is you have to assume sex between the demons and the humans in Genesis 6. Sex between demons and humans? Really? That's a little hard for me to take. I guess you could say the demons took on the form of a body and then had sex with women. The Middle Ages sure believed in it. I think they call them succubi, if I remember correctly. These demons who came in and had sex with women. I think there was some of them called incubi, too. I can't remember who's who. Who's the male and who's the female. But the point is, is that idea's been around for a long time in Western Christendom and... The next problem you have with this view is that it very well could be that these sons of God weren't demons at all, but were really the sons of Seth, the line of Seth. I've looked at that briefly, and in my opinion, that's exactly what it's referring to. But the big weakness of this view that if it's spirits in prison in Hades is how could demons repent in Jesus' preaching? A demon's not going to re- preach, they're not going to repent hearing preaching. What do we think? Jesus just went down there to mock them and make fun of them? All right, so I don't think many people believe that. I think most people believe that it's Old Testament saints who end up down there. But before I get to that option, let's say that it's the spirits of Noah's wicked contemporaries, the spirits of those in prison. And we can include with that option the spirits of all evil Old Testament people. So this is bad people, according to this theory, of those who were in the, of those spirits who were imprisoned. Now let's take the third option. It's Old Testament saints who hadn't been re- resurrected yet. Jesus goes down there and takes them and he lifts them up to heaven. So they go from Hades to heaven, to paradise, if you will. Well, maybe not paradise, but to heaven. And so that's the third option. So basically, this is the human option of who these spirits are imprisoned in Hades. Bad Old Testament people and Old Testament saints. Good Old Testament people. And according to some versions of this theory, the bad people have a chance to get saved again. They've already died, but they get another chance to get saved. You know, that's a little iffy theologically. Of course, the Old Testament saints, they don't need to get saved, but they need to get pulled out of Hades and taken up to heaven. Now, what's the weakness with all that? Here's what John Gill says. How in the world do you say that Old Testament saints are in prison? They live a righteous God. They love God. And when they die, they go to prison. They are imprisoned in Hades. Now, why do I say prison? Because that's what Peter says here in our verse. First Peter three nineteen and 20. He says, Jesus, he, Jesus, went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. So you're going to tell me, holding tank theology adherents, you're going to tell me that the Old Testament saints are in prison? Now, here's what Gill says about that preposterous idea. Quote, for they were in peace and rest in the kingdom of heaven in Abraham's bosom, inheriting the promises and not in a prison. Besides, the text says not one word of the delivering of these spirits out of prison, only of Christ preaching to them. 
Add to all this, in which Beza with others observes, the apostle speaks of such as had been disobedient and unbelievers, a character which will not agree with righteous men and prophets and patriarchs under the former dispensation. In other words, Peter is talking about all the disobedient spirits in prison. He says in verse 20, Who in the past were disobedient? You're going to call that, you're going to say that's Old Testament saints? That is preposterous, my friends. And it's just amazing to me how many people believe in preposterous doctrines, and that's one of them. Not to mention, I've already mentioned this, I'll mention it again, that when somebody dies, do they have another chance to get saved? Hebrews 9.27, and just as it's appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, they die, and then they get a second chance to, to hear the gospel when Jesus drops on down to Hades and preaches the gospel to them, and then they get a chance to believe. That's not what Hebrews says. It says you die, and then after that judgment. It sounds like it means immediately after that judgment. There doesn't seem to be any gap in there to give Jesus time to go down there and preach salvation. So I know this is a complicated and controversial thing. That's why I spent so much time on it. It also happens to be one of my pet peeves. But anyway, we're going to take it, Calvin's view, that Jesus proclaimed to the spirit, spiritual people on earth, the evil people on earth who were in bondage spiritually, they were preached to by that ark. And, the, and in that sermon... The, the sermon that they saw when they saw that ark, they saw eight people being saved through water. The eight people, by the way, were Noah, one, his wife, two, his three sons, five, and his three daughters-in-law married to those sons as eight. Now, the interesting thing here is that they were saved through water. Ah, baptismal regeneration. Is that what that stands for? Well, Peter's going to use this salvation through water as a as a object lesson, if you will, a metaphor for baptism in the next verse. But before we get there, let's point out that the same water that destroyed all the evil people on earth at the time also saved the righteous people, Noah and his family. Same water destroyed is that saved. This is something nice for people in a nation under judgment, i.e. the United States of America right here in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis as people are talking about the degeneration of the republic and the coming civil war. It's a nice thing for us to realize that the same judgment can bring salvation to people. That has to be supernatural. It takes a supernatural God to do that. Happened here. The righteous people were saved. The unrighteous people were drowned. We go now to verse 21. Excuse me, I'm not finished yet. Let's take a look at this word patiently in verse 19. God patiently waited in the days of Noah. Now, some people say that it took... Noah, 120 years to build the ark, and that's why the people had to wait patiently. Well, excuse me, why God had to wait patiently as he waited for Noah to build the ark. And these people quote Genesis 6, 3, And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. Now that verse doesn't say it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. It's an inference to say that. So I looked this up in Answers in Genesis. They're the kind of the Old Testament experts. And this is what the author of the article said, some erroneously say 120 years is the time it took Noah to build the ark. Well, then the author uses a bunch of complicated reasonings and speculations, which I didn't follow. I didn't take the time to really follow it out. I just take their word for it. They said that the longest that it could have taken Noah to build the ark was 75 years, and it could be anywhere between 55 and 75 years. Okay. At most 75 years, that's still a long time. So God had to patiently wait before he sent the rain to drown the bad guys. Because if he sent the rain too early, it would have drowned Noah and his, and his family. But the fact that it took so long to build the ark, that means the bad guys had 75, 55 to 75 years of looking at that ark and, and having time to repent. And they didn't do it. That makes their lack of repentance even more reprehensible than it was. Because that water, that flood did not come suddenly. We go now to 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism, again, he's correspond, which corresponds to this, corresponds to the Noah's flood, now saves you, parenthesis, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God, close parenthesis, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, baptism corresponds to Noah's flood. How? Well, there's a double symbolism here. First of all, the flood symbolizes baptism. And baptism symbolizes salvation. Why? Because the flood saved Noah and his friends, and his, excuse me, and his family. But the other kind of symbolism is death. The flood killed the unrighteous. Well, the flood symbolizes both death and salvation. The flood killed the unrighteous. 
but it saved Noah and his family, as I've said. And baptism, in the same way, symbolizes death, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and our identification with it. We go down into, into the water as if it were a watery grave, if you will, and then we come up from it, just like Jesus went into his grave and came up. So baptism symbolizes the life of Christ after his resurrection. So let me, let me back that up. The double symbolism here is the water brought death, the symbol of death, just as baptism symbolizes the death of the old man, and the water in Noah's time symbolized life because it brought life to Noah and his friends. Likewise, baptism symbolizes life because baptism is a symbol of, of life coming to the new man in his resurrection life in his new and living way. So that's pretty good symbolism. But the symbolism is so close Peter says, this baptism now saves you. And people jump on that and say, see there? Baptismal regeneration. Baptism saves us. It is amazing to me how anybody could believe that because Peter anticipated how people would misinterpret him. He says, saves you, just like that water saved Noah and his family. The baptism saves you. But, but, but now don't get me wrong. It's not the baptism that saves you. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves you, as he says at the end of the verse. And he puts it in parentheses. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. In other words, it's not this what saves you, the removal of the filth of the flesh. In other words, you're washing the flesh off your body as you get plunged into the water. That does not remove your filthy sins. The filth of the flesh is a symbol for sins here. Baptism doesn't remove your sins. He says it right here in the parenthesis. So how could anybody, are you listening, all you Anglicans? Are you listening, C.S. Lewis? How in the world can you say that baptism removes your sins? It's nonsense. What removes your sins is the pledge of a good conscience towards God. In other words, I pledge to follow you, Jesus. I, I accept your salvation, your justification by justification, and uh, uh, and your declaration of righteousness of of forgiveness of my sins and, and your declaration of righteousness for me before God. And, you know, those things that go into getting saved. And my conscience is purely devoted or pledged to that. That's how I get saved, not by a ritual. It's the resurrection of Jesus that saves us, not rituals. As important as the ritual is, the ritual is an important symbol, but it doesn't save us. Notice that even the symbolism, not in, in addition to Peter's words in the parentheses, that baptism does not remove the filth of the flesh, but also the symbol itself, because what did save Noah? Was it the water that saved Noah, or was it the ark that saved Noah? It was the ark, and the ark corresponds to Jesus. So that's where the salvation came from, not the water. So you can actually apply the symbolism too close. We go now to 1 Peter 3.22. Now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. He went into heaven in Acts 1.9.11. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching. That's his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. And suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. And they said, they said men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. So the resurrection and the ascension are some of the elemental, elemental doctrines of the Christian faith. Jesus is now at God's right hand. That's the place of the highest dignity, honor, and influence, as Clark says. Who's subject to him there? Everybody's subject to him. Angels, authorities, and powers. That's referring to spiritual beings. First of all, let's look at some scriptures that talk about the right hand of God, just to drive that point home, the place of authority where Jesus is. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's already there. Hebrews 12.2, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. He sat down, his priestly ministry is over and he sat there in a position of authority. And that's who's looking after us, folks. Somebody who has authority over every demon of hell. Acts 7.55, But Stephen, filled by the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Romans 8.34, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So that's Jesus at God's right hand is a big scriptural theme. Now, who are these angels, authorities, and powers that are subject to him? I'm just going to assume, well, 
when it comes to angels, some people say it's good angels, some people say it's bad angels. John Gill and Adam Clark say it's both good angels and bad angels. That sounds good enough for me. Authorities, I take as the same thing as angels. To show that, I'm going to read you several verses in Ephesians and Romans and Colossians. Ephesians 1.21, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion. That doesn't really say whether it's angels or demons, but it's some kind of spiritual being. Ephesians 3.10, this is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Again, that's not clear whether it's demons or angels. Ephesians 6.12, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Well, now, that's demons. Romans 8.38, for I am persuaded that, that persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, and in parentheses, hostile powers. So the assumption by the Homo Christian Study Bible there is those angels were demons. Colossians 1.16, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created. Well, if they were created before they fell, that means they were angels then. Colossians 2.10, and you've been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. So it's some kind of spiritual being, whether angels or demons or both, I think both. Some people say it's referring to kings, princes, and governors. John Gill says that. So Jesus is sitting up there ruling over Xi Jinping, Donald Trump, and all the other rulers of the earth right now. And I don't know what it is exactly, but I know that God's up. Jesus is up there ruling it all. He's got everything under his control and we don't need to worry. I emphasize that now as we're in the period of turmoil in America, during riots every day in the cities, COVID-19 everywhere, people getting sick. I got a good relative. I've got a relative of mine, 15 days being sick, worst thing she's ever been through in her life. She says, might be COVID-19, might not. She tested negative, but all the symptoms are there, you know. And it's everywhere you run into people who are catching this thing. And hey, God's in control of it all. Judgment is coming. Remember, the same order that judges the evil can float the boat of those who believe in Jesus. We don't need to worry. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with 1 Peter chapter 3. In our next audio, in starting in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we will talk about stewards, being a steward of God's grace. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.